What happens if you've failed Jesus in some major way? What if you've committed some kind of huge sin, or you've betrayed your Christian friends, or maybe you even denied your faith? Is there a way back? What happens when you try to talk to the Lord after that? Well, a meeting between Jesus and his disciple Peter after Jesus' resurrection shows the answer. We'll be talking about that today on Groundwork. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. And Scott, we've come at last to the seventh and final program in this overview of the fourth gospel, the gospel according to John. And as we saw, if you're a regular Groundwork listener, which I hope you are, then at the end of our last program, we noted how chapter 20 wraps up with a statement that sounds like it's the conclusion to the whole gospel. Yeah, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that looks like it's time to roll the end credits and the show's over. Not quite. But that, that, that statement is significant, though, Dave, because um, John is saying, look, I have not written a dispassionate account here. I've been grinding an ax all along. I've edited Jesus' life. Uh, we noted earlier in the series that he seemed to have moved the cleansing of the temple up to the beginning. John has license to do that as an evangelist, as an apostle, and he's saying, I'm doing it all so that you'll believe. And that was my purpose, the end, except not quite. We get John 21. Which is a wonderful chapter. It's got one of the coolest stories in all the New Testament, but it's a rather odd story that raises a number of questions about it. Because all of a sudden, it seems like Peter decided to go fishing, and, and they're back in Galilee. They had been in Jerusalem. That's where Thomas fell on his knees in the upper room and said, my Lord and my God, that tremendous confession of the divinity and the salvation work of Jesus. And yet the next thing we see, some of them, six or seven of them, have gone to Galilee and Peter wants to fish again. Well, and it's interesting because John's the only part of the New Testament that gives us anything that happened in the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension back into heaven. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us almost nothing. Mark gives us zero. Mark ends at the tomb with the women running away. Matthew flash forwards to the Great Commission. Luke includes the day, the road to Emmaus, which is still on the day of. And then in Acts 1, he gives us the ascension. But John alone fills us in on a couple things that happened uh, in the meantime, in those 40 days. This is one of them. But that's what makes this story strange. The disciples are have seen Jesus twice. They're living in a world where a resurrection happened. And they look bored. As John 21, they're just sitting around. Uh, we're, we're told there are five disciples. And then John says, and there are two others. He doesn't even name them. How can you be bored in a world where the resurrection yeah, happened? Right. They don't seem to know what to do. So they go back to do what they know how to do best for the moment. Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other ones say, yeah, we'll go with you. I mean, gee, we got nothing else to do. So they fish. And again, we've said this before, it's a good thing Jesus called these guys to be disciples because they were lousy fishermen. They could never catch yeah, right. a thing. It uh, seems like, own. yeah. So they toil all night and the sky begins to lighten in the east. The pink of dawn colors the horizon. It, you can just picture this scene as they look they see somebody standing on the shore. They're, they're not very far into the lake uh, because they can talk to this figure 
who says, hey, have you caught anything? And they said, no, we haven't caught anything. And he says, throw the net over on the other side. Yeah. Alarm bells start yeah, to ring. Except they don't run away for the disciples. You know, fishermen who get skunked, the last thing they want to hear when they come back in is catch anything? Yeah. No. Right. Uh, they don't really want, they're, they're a little annoyed. And I imagine that as they, uh, you know, they, they move the net to the other side, they might have been rolling their eyes a little bit. It's like, as though we didn't try both sides of the boat all night, stranger on the beach. Thank you very much. And of course they do. And immediately the net just fills up with fish. We'll be told later it's 153 good-sized fish. And immediately John, the beloved disciple, looks and says, it's the Lord. It's Jesus on the beach. Peter is in the boat, and he had taken most of his clothes off as they toiled uh, with their nets. And then this is very funny. I think the scene is meant to be funny. Peter gets dressed again and then jumps in the water and swims, swims to shore. shore. Right, yeah. Now he's soaking wet. He had, he had been ready to swim before. Anyway, that, that's pretty funny. But they get to the shore. The other disciples haul the boat. And there's Jesus, who has already got some fish sizzling on a fire. And he's already made some biscuits. Uh, so Jesus is tending this fire. And there he is. And yet none of them dare ask, is it you? Yeah. Because they're pretty sure it's him. Yeah, but th there's something really strange about this scene and rather awkward and uncomfortable. And as you pointed out, Scott, in our church, uh, the pastor usually before he gives the benediction says, remember we live in a world where a resurrection happened, which is a wonderful, encouraging phrase. They're living in a world where they know a resurrection has happened, and yet they don't seem to be acting differently. So, And what about Jesus? He is the resurrected Lord of Lords and King of Kings. What's he doing cooking breakfast? Is this what you do after the resurrection? You make breakfast? Why isn't he, you know, witnessing to the Caesar in Rome or, or curing some diseases or bringing justice like a mighty river? It's just an odd thing that Jesus is spending his time after the resurrection cooking breakfast on this particular occasion. But it's a wonderful sort of homey scene. Yeah. Like outdoor at the campground, outdoors at the campground. And the reason that Jesus has set this whole thing up is because he has some business to transact with Peter. And that's the main point of the story, which we come to as we read a little further. So when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And so there it is. Uh, some uh, have pointed out that this triple questioning of Peter maybe responds to his triple denial of Jesus um, earlier. On the night in which Jesus was arrested, three times Peter said, I don't know him, I don't know him, I tell you. And then he swears, I don't know him. Yeah. So now three times he gets a chance to affirm uh, his love for Jesus. There's a little wordplay here, which some commentators used to think was a big deal. A lot of them don't think it's a big deal now. Jesus uses that word agape, do you love me? And Peter keeps answering with a different word of phile, from which we get, uh, you know, like Philadelphia, brotherly right. love. Some have thought maybe Peter didn't dare go on a limb anymore and use the agape word, so he uses a second-tier word. And then the third time, Jesus uses the second-tier word, and it's almost as though he's coming down to Peter's level. Peter is initially hurt, but Jesus says it's okay. And even if there were something to Peter using a secondary word for love, 
Jesus still says, feed my lambs, yeah. take care of my sheep. It didn't matter. Jesus was willing to meet him where he was, and he still had work to do. Interesting, too. Another little detail. You, you mentioned the difference in the words for love. Notice that Jesus doesn't call Peter, Peter. <laughs> Jesus had given Peter that nickname, which right. means rock, rock yeah. when Peter had confessed that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. But here he says to him, Simon, son of John, Simon, son of John, do you love me? So, I mean, maybe he's he's reminding Peter that he wasn't such a rock at the time when he denied Jesus, but nevertheless, he's being restored. He's being brought back into that relationship. The one fundamental for anyone who wants to belong to him is to love him. That's all you need to do, really. I mean, and that has implications. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, yes. But it keeps coming back to this. Do you love me? Do we love him? And if we do, then Jesus gives us something to do about it. Feed my sheep, my lambs. Now, that was special for Peter uh, because he was going to be the leader of the disciples. He was going to write a couple of letters in the New Testament. But for us, too, care for the body of Christ. Care for those who belong to him. That's Peter's commission. And we want to think about that a little bit. So love for Jesus is key. It has implications. It's not just uh, something you do on the side. It it dictates what you do with your life. Uh, And so in just a moment, we'll wonder about what uh, is actually, quite literally, the pastoral task of the church. Stay tuned. Meet ReframeMedia.com, a web resource to help you in your Christian life. I want my children to be entertained, but also grow in their Christian faith. It's time for Kids Corner. Where can I get a daily spiritual shot in the arm? This is Today, a daily devotional to refresh, refocus, renew. And there's more. Think Christian, Church Juice, Family Fire, resources for every age to help you grow and build your faith. Explore and visit ReframeMedia.com today. I'm Dave Best, along with Scott Jose, and you're listening to Groundwork, where today we're looking at the epilogue of the Gospel of John, chapter 21, which seems to have been tacked on after John wrapped up the Gospel, chapter 20, with the statement about his purpose being so that we may believe uh, that Jesus is the Christ. And we've just seen Jesus kind of restoring Peter. Actually, Paul says that there was an earlier private appearance uh, of Jesus to Peter after the resurrection. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15. So we have to understand, I think, that they've already kind of restored their relationship and that the primary thing that's going on here is Peter's commissioning for ongoing service, not just as one of the disciples, but really as the chief of the disciples. And so Jesus gives him, as you said, Scott, this pastoral task. Pastor means shepherd. Uh, And Jesus uses the image of sheep and lambs. Uh, Maybe that means adults and children. uh, Who knows? But it is literally a a shepherding task, which is the pastoral task. That's where we get our word for pastor in the church to this day. We are all under shepherds of the great shepherd. Earlier in John, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. So Jesus is the the great good shepherd, the big shepherd, and then we're all underlings. Uh, We're under shepherds who take care of his sheep. We feed them which probably means preaching the word of God, doing the sacraments, the Lord's Supper. We right. think of a literal feeding. Uh, we take care of the lambs. That's what the, the work of the church is. Yeah, and speaking of sacraments and this wonderful image of sheep and lambs, the reason we baptize infants in our tradition, in the Reformed tradition, 
is because, as one of the English reformers said in the 16th century, the lambs too are part of the flock. Mm. Our children belong to the Lord, and we give a sign of this. So they're included, and the whole flock needs that kind of feeding on God's Word. And faithful pastors, not just Peter, who was uh, famous and a leader, and according to Catholic tradition, the first pope, Hmm. uh, nevertheless, all the way down to a Sunday school teacher or a youth leader, the thing we're supposed to be doing is helping people take in God's Word, understand it, grow from it, and follow Jesus more closely. So that's what Peter is told three times over, just like the three times uh, question, do you love me? But then the encounter with Jesus and Peter takes a different turn, and it seems as though Jesus leads Peter away a little bit to say something in private to him. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John inserts this almost like a parenthetical. This was to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. So this book ends the gospel. The first thing Jesus says to all the disciples is, follow me. Now that Peter's been restored, we're on the other side of the resurrection now. The call goes back follow me. But following Jesus means often going the way of the cross. Uh, As Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, wrote in his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, when when Jesus calls a person, he bids that person to come and die. And uh, Jesus is apparently predicting that Peter will end up dying for the gospel, despite his feet of clay nature. This Peter the Rock ended up having feet of clay, but with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter will preach that glorious sermon on Pentecost and become a leader, and he will die for the gospel one day. And that's certainly what the cryptic language Jesus uses about Peter's hands being bound and him being led to some place he doesn't want to go. And we're not told in the New Testament how Peter died or when Peter died, but there's a very strong tradition in the early church and continuing on that Peter died in Rome under the persecution of the Emperor Nero, probably in the year 64 AD, and his body, in fact, is buried on the Vatican Hill, which was where Nero's pleasure gardens were, and uh, where he executed many of the Christians, even according to Roman historians. Some of them he set on fire as illumination for his parties in this garden. Peter was crucified head downward, tradition says, because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same position as the Lord had died. And he's buried there, and a church was built over the spot when Christians had permission, and that church is St. Peter's. We think basically, maybe with the exception of John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos eventually, we think that's the same John who wrote the gospel and the epistles anyway, although there's some controversy on that. But we think that uh, all the disciples met a martyr's end, including the disciples, you know, who we don't know and hear about a lot about, you know, Thaddeus and Bartholomew and some of the others. But James and Andrew and Simon or Peter, they all paid for the gospel with their lives, which tells you, indeed, how deeply they believed and knew it was true. Chuck Colson, we've mentioned this before, Charles Colson, who worked for Richard Nixon, went to jail uh, because of the Watergate scandal. Colson said that his being convicted in the Watergate scandal convinced him that the gospel was true, and here's why. He said, 
They had all made a pact that they would not tell the truth about what happened with Watergate. He and the other co-conspirators, nope. But as soon as they put the pressure on and said, well, you're going to go to jail for a few months, they all cracked and they all told the truth. He said, that was just a little jail sentence. You wouldn't die for something unless you totally believed in it. And indeed, they did. Peter did too. And he overcomes his earlier denying Peter to become the great apostle who will indeed uh, die a martyr's death. So Jesus is saying to Peter, you're going to have to literally die. And the other disciples met that same fate. When he calls us to follow him, for most of us, that's not going to lead literally to our death. But there is a sense in which, as Bonhoeffer said, we're called to come and die because spiritually speaking, we need to die to ourselves. Jesus said it elsewhere, take up your cross daily and follow me. That's adopting the position of a person who no longer is alive uh, for themselves, but living only for him. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And somebody else was following Jesus and Peter in that last little conversation. We'll look at that at the very end in the last segment of this last program. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. And Scott, so we're coming now to the very end of John 21 and the end of this series. And we just seen that Jesus had not only reinstated Peter and recommissioned him to feed, to tend uh, the flock of his church, but he also told Peter something about how Peter's own life was going to end, and it was going to end in a martyr's death. But then uh, there's this curious little scene that, uh, again, we, you said, I think, that maybe Jesus had pulled Peter aside just to tell him this part privately. They were having breakfast on the beach. This is still the same scene that we began in John 21. And then Peter turns around and sees the beloved disciple, who we think that's John's signature for himself. Mm-hmm. So Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. And because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that that disciple would not die. But Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? And this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. So a number of curious things there. Mm. Dale Bruner points out that uh, throughout different parts of John, there's like this friendly rivalry between Peter and John. Uh, You even see it in John 20 uh, when the disciples hear Jesus' body has been raised. And so Peter and John have a little foot race to get to the tomb. And John makes sure to put in that, well, he got there first. Peter got there second and then ran right into the tomb. But John won the foot race. And now Peter's just been restored. Jesus said, follow me. And yet Peter's worried about this other guy. What about him? And Jesus almost seems a little annoyed. Like, I just told you to follow me. 
what are you worried about him for? Shoot, if I want him to stay alive, that's what'll happen. It makes me think of the Narnia books of C.S. Lewis. He says to one of the children, you know, you only get to hear your own story. Uh, (laughs) You don't get to hear the other person's story. So that's exactly what Jesus is saying to Peter here. You just focus on your story because whatever happens to him is between me and him. So, yeah, Peter is going to go on following Jesus. It's going to lead him eventually to his own cross, and the other disciple, the beloved disciple, will lead a different kind of path. In fact, most Christians believe and assume that John lived to be the very last of the original disciples, to be a very old man, at which time uh, he may be writing the gospel and also the epistles and maybe the book of Revelation as well. But it's especially interesting, I think, to note the last uh, verse in the passage that you read, Scott. This is the disciple, referring to the beloved disciple, who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And my question is, who wrote that verse? Because it's not John. Who's we? Yeah, who's the we? We know that his testimony is true. And, you know, we, we think maybe, I mean, it is it is possible that the community, the, the church that John would later um, found, maybe helped get this all written down and put it together. Maybe they were even the ones who uh, remembered uh, this other story John told them, and maybe that's where John 21 came from, because we said, John 20, at the end, it looks like the end. So this is maybe the community saying, okay, there's no quote marks in Greek, but if there were quote marks, verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies to these things who wrote them down, close quote, and then the insertion, and we know that his testimony is true. So this is the church talking, which is exactly what Jesus has said. When the apostles succeed, as John does through this gospel, with tending the lambs and feeding the sheep, then the word comes, and we know. That's us again, even to this day. We know that John's testimony uh, is true. And then we get a repeat, uh, almost the same words, but not quite, of how John 20 ended, which looked like the end. Again, Jesus did many other things that are not written in this book. If all the things Jesus said and did were written down, the world could not contain the books that would be written, which is a clear, wonderful example of hyperbole. It's sort of like Jesus saying, you know, take care of the log sticking out of your own eye before you do the speck of sawdust. It's a hyperbole. Of course, you could write down everything Jesus said and did, and the world wouldn't you know, be full of books everywhere you turn. But it might be the way of saying Jesus and the gospel really are bigger than the world because they contain the world. They contain the cosmos. God so loved the cosmos. It is bigger than the world because it saved the world. And you might also remember that Jesus continues to speak and to act, and he does so through the Spirit working in and through his followers. So as we follow him the way he invited Peter to do, so the Spirit comes to us and enables us, gives us the strength to begin to love as Jesus loved, to begin to serve as Jesus served, to begin to witness to all that he said and done the way John first witnessed. And we believe because uh, we've heard from others, trustworthy witnesses. I mean, it, it invites you to reflect on how do you believe anything? Mostly we believe things because uh, reliable witnesses told us. We didn't right. figure it out for ourselves. And that's what the end of, of John is saying. Look, 
this church is saying. Maybe it's the church of Ephesus where John served, we believe. Look, we know him. He was our pastor for years and years and years. We know he tells the truth and he told the truth about Jesus. And you can believe it. And we flash back to John chapter 1 where we began, where John says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And Dale Bruner, the commentator, likes the present tense of shines. That light shines and it shines and it shines and it shines at the end of John. It is true. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Scott Jose and Dave Bast, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we continue to dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. Connect with us at our website, groundworkonline.com. Tell us what Groundwork means to you. Make suggestions for future Groundwork programs. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Media, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframemedia.com for more information. Our recording engineer is Dot Morris. Our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our content and managing producer is Courtney Jacob.